welcome to the Volva Diaries with host Dr. Amanda Selk, bringing you the 101 on vulvovaginal health. So today we have Dr. Leslie Sedonik again with us, the director for BC Center for Vulvar Health, a gynecologist in Vancouver, and we're going to have an advanced talk about lichen sclerosis. Hi, Dr. Sedonik. Hi, Dr. Selk. So last time we talked about how to diagnose lichen sclerosis and biopsies and initial treatment. Let's talk today about what happens with the patient who's not getting better. So this is very common. Probably 15% of women that you diagnose with vulvar lichen sclerosis will come back saying their symptoms are not improved or even worse on your topical steroid. So I have a framework for approaching these patients. My first question I would ask myself is, is the diagnosis correct? And I know the last time we talked a bit about the differential diagnosis for vulvar lichen sclerosis being such things as lichen planus or normal urogenital atrophy, but less common diagnoses might be an irritant or allergic dermatitis due to your medication or the base of the medication, precancerous skin conditions, cancerous skin conditions. So the first question I would ask myself is, is the diagnosis correct. And if it's not, or if I have any doubt about it, I might stop all treatment, wait a couple of weeks, ask her to come back and reevaluate the vulva and probably do a skin biopsy at that time. If I think the diagnosis is correct, then I ask myself, is the treatment appropriate? Is the treatment correct? So that goes down to what we were talking about. Has the patient been adherent to therapy? Has she been compliant? And I, th- I would say, Amanda, you probably concur that half of my patients who are not responding to steroid are not using it correctly. Yeah, I think one of the most common ones is not using enough. We used to worry about people using too much, but I actually find that they're a rarer and rarer group. We're too good at scaring them or the pharmacist, and then they just use this tiny, tiny amount or they only put on the labia majora and they don't like open up yeah. the labia and get right in there. Yeah, I think it's really important that women use their fingers. I have patients who come to me and say that they use a Q-tip mm-hmm. and they dip it in and then they paint the vulva. Well, I'm not really sure how much they're spreading or or where. I like women to actually you know, feel comfortable in touching the skin. They know where the skin surfaces are. They can feel changes to the skin surface. And after, they just need to wash their hands with soap and water. But at least then you know that they're spreading it on the skin. I tell them the same thing because some of them say that they worry that their fingers are going to thin their skin. And I, I haven't actually seen that happen. And I just tell them to wash their hands too. Yes. So if the diagnosis is correct, the treatment is appropriate, she's using it the right amount in the right way and applying it to the right skin, then the question would be, is there a secondary diagnosis, right? And a secondary diagnosis can be common in, especially in older women, where they may be having herpes. For example, you're using an immunosuppressant. So first of all, of course, the contact dermatitis that the medication they're using or something you haven't asked about Tea tree oil. That's right, that they're using over-the-counter medication still, soaps. or So you, again, (laughs) despite that initial history and advising them not to use things on the skin, I think it's worth reviewing exactly what they're doing. And I actually ask women to take me through their day. Okay, you get up in the morning and what do you do? I mean, I've seen from this type of history taking, I found women who was, you know, washing her vulva with the shower head for 15 minutes on hot water every day. Right, with this misbelief that the vulva is dirty or needs mm-hmm. to be cleaned. So I think it's worthwhile to take an in-depth history about that. 
And of course, what we always worry about, especially in elder older women, is that they may have coexisting precancerous areas. So they often present as persisting areas of burning or itching, a persistent erosion that hasn't changed despite treatment. Yeah, I classically use the a cut that won't heal, one sore area, anything hard that won't go away, let me know. That's right, because if it's not responding to treatment, that also needs to be biopsied, and you don't need to stop the treatment. And then the final question I would ask myself is, are my treatment goals appropriate? My expectation is that with the steroid, the itch should go away, the patient's skin should improve, but the steroid is not going to reverse anatomical changes, for example, clitoral phimosis or labial adhesions. If they're having burning, constant pain or sexual pain that's due to perhaps vestibulodynia or vulvodynia, that's not going to get better. So the patient may be perceiving that the treatment's not working, but maybe it's because they have something else going on, like urogenital atrophy, common thing. So there are people who were asymptomatic to begin with, mm. and so when you're treating them, that's always a little bit tricky because they mm. don't actually feel any different. Yes. Right? And you, we still treat them. Mm-hmm. And then what do you do with those pain people? So where their mm-hmm. biggest complaint is pain and not itch, or the itch got better and they still have pain, what mm-hmm. do you do then? Yeah, so I think if your diagnosis of lichen sclerosis was correct, you gave them the right treatment, they come back, the itch has resolved and the skin looks better, but they say, hey, my sexual pain's not any better. Then you need to assess that pain as a separate complaint and do a detailed history and exam to try and understand what is causing the sexual pain. Is it vaginismus, which women may develop because their sex was painful when they had lichen sclerosis. Now they have vaginismus. That doesn't miraculously go away. Is it vaginismus? Is it sensitivity at the vestibule due to a lack of estrogen or vulvodynia? So once I feel comfortable about my secondary diagnosis, then I would recommend therapy for specific for that secondary diagnosis. Now, for burning, I often find with patients who've had long-standing chronic dermatoses that they do develop a component of generalized vulvodynia, and they respond quite well usually to low-dose tricyclic antidepressants such as dizipramine. Alternatives would be pregabalin, gabapentin. I tend to try and avoid adding in a second topical medication in that situation. Great. Do you think there's any new treatments other than steroids for lichen sclerosis? So the secondary line treatments would include actually rather than applying the steroid topically, considering injecting it into the skin. This is particularly helpful for women who have very thickened skin. We talked about the thin skin, but I I realize that in some situations, women actually develop very thickened plaques of skin around the vulva. In that case, they're not going to absorb the topical medication very well. So interlesional subdermal shots, either weekly or monthly of trimycin alone may be very effective. Other second line therapies include our immunomodulators, Uh, such as tacrolimus and pimicrolimus. And these can be very helpful in patients who really, truly are steroid-resistant. They do cause some burning. I tell patients to leave the medication in their fridge. I have them start it daily until they can tolerate it. And then the standard dose is usually twice a day for six weeks for your acute treatment. And then you can tailor it to the patient's response. And the big advantage with that is the lack of skin thinning. 
Mm-hmm. Correct. But it, there are some RCTs that show it to be inferior, so it's a second-line treatment. It's second-line treatment. And then the rest of the treatments uh, that you read about, which I would classify as experimental treatments, are things that patients may read about, about stem cells, PRP, laser, phototherapy. These are treatments that have been used for vulvar lichen sclerosis, but there is very little evidence about their long-term efficacy and their long-term side effects or risks associated with these. So if I was a clinician at this point, I would not recommend experimental therapies. I probably should clarify that phototherapy actually does have quite a bit of evidence because it's used for skin conditions such as lichen sclerosis elsewhere. But in my center, Amanda, it's almost impossible to get vulvar lichen sclerosis treated with phototherapy. So I don't really consider it an option, but maybe in other centers they have more access. Yeah, where I am, we don't have access either. Even for patients with, say, psoriasis, where there's a lot of data for it and they get their light therapy for the rest of their body, dermatologists don't want to treat their vulva. So for me as well, I don't have access to phototherapy. And then, of course, surgical treatments are primarily for surgical lesions. So clitoral phimosis, introidal stenosis, any permanent changes to the vulva will not likely respond to your topical steroids. And often, if it's interfering with women's ability to have penetrative sex or even to urinate, she'll need a surgical intervention. So how do you decide who to operate on? Because a lot of people have anatomical changes, Mm -hmm. but if they don't have symptoms from their anatomical changes, do they need surgery? That's a good question, yeah. There's a difference between symptoms and function. So I tend to recommend surgical intervention when function is being impaired. So the woman's ability to have penetrative sex, to maybe achieve orgasm due to clitoral stimulation, to feel that she can empty her bladder quickly and fully. Only in those situations would I consider an intervention. Now, clitoral phimosis is a tricky one because women often will report impaired or delayed orgasm, and yet there are multiple reasons for that. So aging, loss of estrogen, the relationship, their own sexual arousal cycle. So I think you need to really clarify what their sexual difficulty is because uncovering the glands of the clitoris may not necessarily address that. What do you talk to them about for after surgery and needing to use their steroids, et cetera, and the scarring recurring? That's a very good point because usually surgical intervention is... Most of the time, women are older, and so the skin is thinner to begin with. Wound healing is slower. Some women have mobility issues. So their ability to cleanse the skin, put an emollient on the skin, use a dilator, for example, if we're doing operations for introidal stenosis, they need to dilate twice a day for at least a month. In an 80-year-old woman, that may be very difficult. So I actually tailored the surgery partly to the goal of the surgery. Like if it's just to be able to urinate, then maybe we will only open up, you know, two centimeters so she can use just a small dilator and use that every day. So depending on your surgery, there may be quite an involved post-op period. Patients can't expect that you operate and they go home and things will just heal. And that's one of the reasons I often bring women back at two weeks post-op, you know, because I think that's when I see that things are starting to (laughs) scar again. 
Well, I'm always wary of the people who, if you're not really good with your steroids or you won't dilate or you won't go to physio, I personally won't operate on you mm-hmm. because it just doesn't work. Yeah, like you, women need to understand that the intervention is not just the surgery, but the post-op care is part of the intervention. And so I think you're right, having a very detailed, informed consent so that they understand what is involved and they're aware of the benefits and the risks of the surgery. And if they recur, do you reoperate on them? That's a good question. Again, it depends on the particular case and what result we're trying to have. Probably the ones I would reoperate on are primarily my older patients with the introidal stenosis who are having difficulty urinating. Uh, Those ones, I start actually with a very minimal intervention. And so if that doesn't work, then I may go to a more involved procedure where I actually evert the incisions. You know, it's interesting you bring up urinary issues. I find when I'm talking to people about maintenance therapy, like long-term steroids, they say they're not that worried about if they get anatomical changes because they're not having penetrative sex, they don't have a partner, and they say, like, I don't care if I never use my vagina again. Mm -hmm. And one of my lines is, yes, but everybody needs to pee. (laughs) And so, Mm -hmm. and then they get worried, oh, that could be a problem. Yes. So, and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, for the patients of mine who are asymptomatic or just choose not to, they're not bothered and they don't want to, I strongly recommend at least like a zinc-based barrier cream because then I think that might at least prevent some adhesions by keeping that area always occluded. I think this was a very interesting talk. Do you have any other key take-home points for our listeners? I think the key take-home point would be not to miss a secondary diagnosis. I think that's the most important thing. Women who are not responding to your standard treatment and are adherent to therapy, you need to have a high index of suspicion that they may have a precancer lesion within the field of their vulvar lichen sclerosis. So I would not go on treating indefinitely with no improvement. At some point, you really have to take a step back and revisit your clinical diagnosis. I think that was a very helpful advice. Once your patients are stable, how often do you think they need to be seen? I would see a patient three months after I started treatment for most patients. Six months after that, because that's when I find they stop using their treatment, so it's good to reinforce the treatment that's needed. And then for those patients who are still symptomatic, I might see them every six months until I really feel that both their symptoms and their objective skin disease is under control. Otherwise, I would recommend once a year. And that can be with either myself or their family doctor. It's just somebody needs to look at their skin once a year. And finally, what would be your biggest take-home point today that you want people to remember? So the biggest take-home point is not to ignore chronic symptoms. So women who present with vulvar itch, not to just keep trying treatment after treatment after treatment. If they're really not responding, you need to take a step back, consider that these women do have a risk of precancer and cancer and probably need to be intermittently reassessed biopsy, multiple biopsies, bigger biopsies. Don't ignore lesions that are not resolving. Great. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Again, that's Dr. Leslie Sedonik, a gynecologist and director of the BC Center for Vulvar Health in Vancouver, Canada. Mm-hmm.